Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the word that has been read. And now as we hear your word preached, we ask for your help. We ask for you to send your spirit to give us illumination, to help us to see and to understand the truth found here in this passage. And may you prepare us, prepare our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. And if it be your will, may we grow and may we mature through the preaching of your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, church, our theme is the will of God, his good and perfect will. And I think the goodness and perfection of his will is on full display this morning in the way in which God has providentially willed for this passage to be preached during this prolonged time of pandemic. In our text, we are warned about the uncertainty of our earthly plans, about how no matter how careful or diligent we are, no matter how well thought out or strategic our plans, none of us controls the future, which means all of our plans can be easily disrupted and derailed. Today, I don't think there's a single person on planet Earth who would disagree with that statement. This pandemic has spread to the four corners of the Earth and affected everyone's life We have all felt the loss that comes with having your plans blow up in your face. Just think about how rare that is to have everyone on earth going through the same thing at the same time. So friends, don't let this providential moment pass you by. I believe God is sending the world a clear wake-up call. He's reminding us that we are not the lords of our lives. And I know it's so easy for us to think so. The illusion of control is so tempting in a modern world. We can control the temperature in our homes. We can control the flow of electricity as well. We can control a two-ton vehicle traveling at 70 miles per hour. And, And nowadays, we can even control it to control itself through advancements in medicine, agriculture, and technology, we have alleviated so much human hardship and suffering. We have prolonged life. We have enhanced life. So considering all that we have gained as a civilization, you can see why it's so easy to accept the illusion of control, to assume that we are in control of our lives. But all it takes is another 500, once in 500 year flood or another global pandemic to happen to just shake us from that illusion and to remind us of just how little control we do possess and how our lives really are at the whim of forces much greater than ourselves. Some of you plan for summer jobs that never materialized. Some of you plan for wedding ceremonies and receptions that had to be altered. Some of you plan for summer vacations that were completely scuttled. Some of our missionaries planned to have returned to the field by now, and and others had planned to be sent out by our church by now, but conditions, of course, have changed, and they're stuck in limbo. And then there's uh, schools and workplaces and churches that keep planning to return to campus, but of course, those plans keep getting postponed and pushed back. 
And that's why this is the perfect time to preach this text because all of us are primed to listen to what it has to say. No one would deny the relevancy of this text. No one can say that this doesn't apply to them. All of us are ready to hear what James has to say. Well, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, he essentially has two exhortations for us. First, he's going to tell us what we ought not to say when making plans. And second, he's going to tell us what we ought to say when making plans. Now, as we're going to see, James is definitely concerned with what we say. He's concerned with how we use our tongues. But his deeper concern is what our words reveal about our hearts, about our attitude towards the Lord when we're making our plans. So, friends, let's start by considering what we ought not to say when making plans. Look with me, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Here, James is speaking to wealthier members of the church, likely who are in the merchant class, which explains why they would be making plans to travel and to to trade for business. If you recall, James had already addressed rich Christians in the church back in chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. There he had warned them against boasting in their riches, boasting in their worldly pursuits, and he said instead how they should be boasting in their humble status in Christ. Let me read that text again. This is chapter 1, verse 10. And let the rich boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So you can hear similar themes as you will find in our passage. There's a similar tone of warning or rebuke. There's a reminder of how our lives are fleeting. They're a passing mist. And there's a strong exhortation to humble ourselves before the Lord. Well, James begins in our text in verse 13 with a hypothetical but a very realistic illustration of a very self-confident Christian who speaks of traveling on this particular day to that particular location for this amount of time to accomplish this or that. It's really no different than hearing a Christian today say something like, I'm going to graduate from college in three years. I'm going to finish that graduate program in four, and then I'm going to get a job in this city with that company. Or maybe you might hear someone say, my plan is to be married by the age of this or that. Or they'll say, in three years, we're going to start a family and we're going to have this many kids. James is going to point out three problems with that way of talking. Three problems with that kind of speech. That way of of making and speaking of our future plans. There's... First, the assumption of such speech. Second, the foolishness of such speech. And third, the sinfulness of such speech. Let's consider first the assumption behind that way of talking about future plans. When you talk that way, you're assuming 
that you're in control of those plans, that you have the power in yourself to bring them to fruition, that you have essentially embraced that illusion of control. That, that, that is the kind of presumption that James is warning against here. Now, let's be clear before we move on. James is not forbidding his readers from making any plans for the future. He's not suggesting that any form of goal setting or financial planning is simply wrongheaded. Now, in fact, you could actually turn to various places in Scripture to support the setting aside of savings for the future or to uh, purchase insurance as a way to mitigate against an unforeseen event. To plan for the future in these particular ways is not necessarily an act of unfaithfulness. It could actually be a very responsible way of exercising stewardship. James's main concern is not in the making of plans itself, just as he's not really concerned with just the words themselves in verse 13. What he's really concerned with is the foolish illusion of control that is lurking behind those words, behind those plans. So friends, if, if you happen to find yourself speaking a lot like this person in verse 13, then most likely you have assumed, consciously or not, that you're in control of your plan. You're in control of your future. But that, of course, leads to the second problem with that way of talking. James raises concerns in verse 14 with the foolishness of such speech. Let me read it. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The point is that such self-confident pronouncements about our future plans is foolish, specifically in the way in which it overlooks the nature of life in a fallen world. James highlights, first of all, the uncertainty of life. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't really think I need to spend much time convincing any of you that life is uncertain. I mean, just think about it. No one could have predicted where we are today. No one could have predicted this pandemic. And, of course, no one can predict what major life-altering catastrophe is coming next. Who knows what tomorrow may bring? Proverbs 27 verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. In other words, don't brag about what you're going to do tomorrow because you don't even know how today is going to end. Maybe it'll end with an unexpected joy or maybe with an unforeseen sorrow. You just don't know. That's the uncertainty of life. Next, James emphasizes the brevity of life. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So picture with me the morning mist and how it so quickly disappears with the morning sun. That is how fleeting our life is compared to the endless span of eternity. In Job chapter 7 verse 7, he describes his life as but a breath. Psalm 39 verse 5 affirms the same thing. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. So just think of those not so common days in Houston where the weather gets cold enough where you can actually see your breath. 
You can see it passing through the air and, and fading away quickly. Such is your life. Picture your life as one single drop in the ocean of eternity. Picture your life as, as just one little speck in the infinite reaches of the cosmos. It is foolishness, my friends, to act as if we are going to live forever or to just presume that we're always going to have more time to fulfill our dreams or to, to, to pursue our plans. Life is a vapor. It goes away just like that. And overall, in verse 14, what James is stressing is the fragility of life. One day, life as we know it, he says, it just vanishes. It goes away. It's gone like that. You know, the illusion of control can be quickly shattered by an unexpected illness, a sudden accident, or even just the imminent return of Christ himself. Life is so fragile, and it can be cut short in an instant, along with all of our unfulfilled plans. You know, that parable that we read earlier in Luke chapter 12 speaks to the uncertainty and brevity and fragility of life. The rich fool assumed that he had the illusion. He assumed the illusion of control. He rested in the assumption that he had ample goods laid up for many years, and so he could just sit back and relax and eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This fool's big plans were cut short by an untimely death. Friends, don't be like this fool and don't pronounce your plans with such self-confident certainty. It is pure foolishness to do so. But, you know, it's actually worse than that. It's not just foolishness. It's sinfulness. In verses 16 to 17 here in our text, James exposes the sinfulness of such speech talking this way about your future plans. Listen to verse 16. As it is, referring back to this kind of talking, this kind of speech, verse 13. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James rightly diagnoses that, that behind our self-confident pronouncements of future plans is a prideful self-sufficiency. We're claiming the ability to control the outcome of our life. We're, we're claiming sovereignty over our life to an extent. We're rejecting the Lord when we speak this way. And we are boasting in our prideful self-sufficiency. Now, I know you might be thinking, okay, that's, that's a bit harsh. I, I, I admit that. I, I've been making a lot of life plans without really consulting the Lord. And, and yeah, maybe I've, I've spoken with an air of certainty about my plans for the next few months or for the next few years. But I wasn't trying to reject the Lord. I, I, I wasn't trying to suggest that I don't need him or that his will doesn't matter. Well, look, I get it. 
you didn't set out to reject the Lord or to deny his will. That wasn't your intent. But you have to realize, friends, that that's essentially what you're doing when you plow forward with your plans without any real consideration of his will. That's really the point that James gets at in verse 17. Look there with me. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now, I know at first glance, this warning in verse 17 seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, James is suddenly talking about sins of commission. Oh, I'm sorry, sins of omission. That's failing to do the right thing, uh, which, of course, is in contrast to sins of commission, which is actively doing the wrong thing. So it seems a bit out of nowhere, but if you look there, notice in verse 17, he begins the verse with the word so or therefore. So clearly he's not changing the subject. By referencing sins of omission, James is saying that our passive dismissal of the Lord and of his will in the course of our making of plans is a sinful act. Sure, we, we, we may not have been actively rejecting his will, but it's a sin of omission. It's a sinful dismissal, a sinful neglect. It's a sinful act of blasphemy, nonetheless. And I know calling this way of speaking blasphemy, again, sounds kind of harsh, but you have to realize that this kind of speech and the prideful self-sufficiency behind it really exposes a functional atheism that has, that has come to dominate our way of life. We claim to believe in God. We say we need God, but then we live as if we don't. We don't factor him in to our plans into our life. That's a functional atheism. So friends, really, we ought to examine ourselves to see if this is true of us. You say you're a Christian, but are you functioning really as an atheist in this regard? When you're setting goals and making plans for your life, is your approach distinguishable from someone who doesn't believe in God? Or are you both approaching the making of plans with the same mindset that as long as you have sensible expectations and you take good advice and work hard and don't easily quit, then you can pretty much accomplish anything you set your mind to. If that's your approach, if that's your methodology, you just have to realize that's really no different than worldly wisdom. I think you do know what the right thing to do is. You know that as a Christian, your faith in God, your trust in his will has to factor in somehow to the making of decisions and the forming of plans. But if you fail to do that, well, then for you, it is a sin. It's not just a simple oversight. It's not just a failure to say the right words. This kind of speaking, this approach towards the making of plans is really a heart issue. It's revealing a prideful self-sufficiency that you need to repent of. And after you repent, and after you freshly receive the grace of forgiveness that God freely offers to us through faith in Christ, well then, we ought to reapproach our plans and to now figure out 
what we ought to say when making plans from now on. Well, James tells us just that in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I want us to consider three things here. First, the addendum to our plans. Second, the attitude towards our plans. And third, the foundation of our plans. Let's start with the addendum to our plans, the, the addition that we should include when speaking about our best laid plans. James says you ought to add the phrase, if the Lord wills. So go ahead, make your plans, exercise due diligence, strategize, consult, do whatever it takes to come up with well thought out plans. But in the end, In the end, commit your works to the Lord. Roll your plans into his sovereign hands. Trust his will. And that's what you're doing. That's what you're implying when you say the phrase, if the Lord wills. You determined your will. It's now in the form of whatever plan you have in place. But these words indicate that you have now submitted your will under the Lord's will. You've accepted that your plans are subject to change as the Lord carries out his sovereign will. And this is really how the apostles would just naturally speak throughout the New Testament. When they would speak of their plans, they would talk this way. There are plenty of examples in the New Testament in in, in Acts chapter 18, verse 21, the apostle Paul tells the Ephesians that he plans to return to visit them. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. In first Corinthians chapter four, verse 19, he says again, that he's coming to visit soon. Listen, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And then he reemphasizes his travel plans at the end of the letter in chapter 16, verse 7. Listen to this. I hope to spend more time. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And so that's just how the apostles would speak. It just came natural to them. If the Lord wills, God willing, that's how they would speak. We're going to pursue these goals. We're going to accomplish these plans If the Lord permits. Now, let's be clear. These are not magical words. There's there's nothing uh, special within the words themselves. We should be careful not to regard them so highly that we begin to treat, if the Lord wills, as some sort of incantation with power in itself. But, you know, at the same time, We don't want to go to the other extreme and we don't want to disregard these words and treat them so lightly that they turn into just yet another cliche, something that Christians like to say. I think there is still much to be gained. I think there is still spiritual benefit when we incorporate some variation of these words into our vernacular, especially when we're talking about our, our future plans, our, our in, in future events. It's really how Christians in the past have, have communicated with each other. 
If you read old letters between Puritans in the 17th century or between evangelicals during the Great Awakening, you'll come across a popular Latin phrase, Deo Volenti. It means God willing. And you're going to see the initials DV written at the end of their letters, of their correspondence to each other. Or it would be uh, uh, written on publications that were announcing some activity or, or some event coming up. It was just second nature for them to say, God willing, or to write DV. It wasn't for them an incantation, and neither was it a cliche. It was an expression of faith. It was an expression of a humble resignation to the will of God. And that's the whole point. It's not about a slogan, because if these are just empty words, then, then forget about it. But if we are intentional to incorporate this kind of language into our everyday talk, then it's going to help, Lord willing, to shape our attitude towards our plans. The more conscious I am, that I can't do anything without the Lord's permission, apart from his will, then the more grounded I am. It undercuts my, my prideful self-sufficiency. And it leads to a humble resignation to the Lord's will for my life. Only if he wills, will my plans come to fruition. I need to be constantly reminded of that truth. And that's why I think it's a good thing to say some variation of Deo Volente, God willing, if the Lord wills. The second century church father, Tertullian, in one of his writings, describes how a victorious Roman general would return to Rome in a triumphal procession. And everyone in the city would turn out and there would be this great fanfare, this huge celebration. The entire army would parade in and, and slaves would be carrying in all the, the bounty and spoils of war. And Tertullian says that in the midst of this triumphal procession, the victorious general would have a slave standing right behind him, holding a crown over his head and whispering continually into his ear, Remember, you're only a man. Remember, you're only a man. The Romans understood the formative power of words to shape our attitude. It wasn't a slogan. It wasn't a cliche. It was a needed reminder that we are not gods, that we are mortal. So when we do the same, when we say, God willing, if the Lord wills, if he permits, we're reminding ourselves that we are only mortal, that we are not lords of our lives. We're only creatures whose fragile lives and tenuous plans wholly depend on the Lord. So when we add, if the Lord wills to our speech, it communicates to ourselves and to anyone who is listening the foundation of our plans and how they rest on God alone. 
This is a way for us to proclaim our confidence in the face of, of, uncertain, of uncertain times, in the face of an uncertain future, that our confidence rests not in our ability to accomplish our plans, but in the certainty that God can and God always will accomplish his own. I mean, just think about our plans. What tends to thwart our best laid plans? It could be due to a few things. It could be due to unrealistic expectations from the start. We were aiming too high. We lacked a realistic assessment of our own abilities or of the resources at our disposal. Or another factor that commonly stifles our plans are unforeseen circumstances. Something comes out of nowhere and just throws a wrench into our plans. Or maybe it's unwanted opposition. For our plans to succeed, it requires everyone's compliance. But of course, they have their own set of plans that don't necessarily align with ours. And then, of course, what can ruin any plan is an untimely death, especially our own. Unrealistic expectations, unforeseen circumstances, unwanted opposition, and an untimely death. These, my friends, are all obstacles that would frustrate any plan of ours. But this is exactly where Christianity offers good news. Think about it with me. Every one of those obstacles tried to frustrate Christ and his plans to redeem sinners for God. But there were no expectations too high for the Son of God to handle. And there were no circumstances that he couldn't foresee that, 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 he, he, that, that would catch him off guard. And he faced opposition, but none of his opponents were unwanted. In fact, he wanted each of them, and he would have received them as friends if they were only willing. And yes, he succumbed to death, but it was far from untimely. It occurred at the right time, at the fullness of time. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Christ accomplished all of his plans to redeem sinners. Not a single plan was frustrated. Not a single goal went unfulfilled. And that, my friends, is the ground of our hope. That's the foundation for all of our plans. Whenever we say we're going to do this or that, if the Lord wills, we're saying that we believe that God's will is good and gracious because of what Jesus accomplished. So even if at times our will is not done, and even if his will as it's being done is leading us along a path of suffering, along the road to Calvary like Christ, we can still count it all joy. And we can still truly tell God, not my will, but your will be done. That is the foundation of our plans. What Christ has accomplished through his plans. You know, before we conclude, I'd like to speak a word to those of you who are not Christians, who are still trying to figure out what you believe about God, about Jesus. I hope you come away with, from this sermon, I hope you come away with a sober warning to take more seriously the uncertainty and the brevity and the fragility of life. 
You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. What is your life but a mist? Have you taken those realities into consideration? Now, perhaps many of your plans have been successful so far. And maybe your plans to secure your future or your family's future are going just as planned. But what I want to know is if you've made any plans yet for life after death. Why would you expend so much effort, so much energy in making plans for this life, but to neglect to make plans for your eternal future? Now, maybe you're going to say, well, that's because there's no certainty that an eternal future exists. There's no guarantee that such plans for life after death are certain. But isn't that always the case for all of our future plans? Nothing about your future is certain, and yet you make plans anyways. I'm just pleading to you to carry that logic forward and to start making plans for life after death. And you can do so by turning to Jesus and asking him to be merciful towards you. Ask him to save you from your sins. Ask him to secure your eternal future when this fleeting life is over. Ask Jesus. He won't refuse you. That's the promise of the gospel. And to those of you who are Christians, to those of you who do believe in this gospel, let me remind you of one of the blessings of this gospel, and that's knowing that your future is secure in Christ. The more you rest in that truth, brother, sister, the more you are released of that pressure to make sure all of your plans come to fruition. We should be like royal children who are free to pursue their plans without any undue pressure. They don't worry about their future. A prince, a princess, they just make plans. And even if those plans fail, they know that their inheritance is secure. Well, I think that's how Christians should feel when making our own plans for the future. We can enjoy that same freedom in, to be able to not worry, even if our plans fail, because our inheritance in Christ is secure. And we don't have to have that sense of entitlement that's often found among earthly royals because we know we're not entitled to anything. We know we are undeserving sinners and that our inheritance is all of grace. So make plans and then trust those plans into the hands of the Lord. If he wills, well, then your plans will be done. But either way, you can trust in the King of Kings who just so happens to be your father in heaven. Let's go to him in prayer now. Father, we thank you for this word and the warning and the stark reminder it is that our life is but a myth, that our life is so fleeting that we ought to be humble when we think about the future and to make future plans. So Lord, give us that humility. Lord, help us to approach you 
and to approach the future with a God-glorifying dependence and a heart of trust and humble resignation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.